If you're enjoying History's Greatest Cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast mini-series, History's Greatest Cities, exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sights of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together, we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness, and we'll visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Cartledge, Emeritus A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture at the University of Cambridge. Paul has studied and lectured on ancient Greece for many decades, writing numerous books on the subject. His latest is Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, published by Pan Macmillan in 2020. His deep knowledge of Greece and its rich heritage makes Paul the ideal guide to lead us through the streets and around the sites of Athens, delving back through thousands of years of often tumultuous, sometimes glorious history. Together we'll visit monuments dating back to the days of the world's original democracy and before, as well as reminders of Roman, Byzantine, Ottoman and later eras. We'll also explore some of the ideas and meet the personalities that shaped Athens and, in time, much of the Western world. And along the way, we'll hopefully shine new light on less known aspects of this fascinating and ancient city. So, Paul, welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. As we see so often in this podcast series, Athens has a wonderful foundational myth. Please could you recount the tale? There are, of course, several myths. The One of the myths was that the Athenians, once upon a time, had seven, we would call them entirely mythical or legendary kings, the earliest of which was Kekrops, and the last of which was Theseus. Historically speaking, we might position them beginning somewhere around 1500 BC and carrying on to somewhere around 1200 BC. The myth that I think you probably want me to talk about is a competition between two gods, two Olympian gods, Athena, who in fact, of course, gives her name to Athens, or or was it the other way around? There's a bit of a dispute. And on the other hand, Poseidon. 
And Athena offered to whatever the Athenian population then was in this mythical far-off time, the gift of the olive. Olive oil is uh, a multi-purpose uh, fruit, and Athens and Attica, which is the territory of Athens, happens to be particularly suited to the growing of the olive. Against her, Poseidon, of course a male, uh, offered water and especially sea water and therefore um, gave the Athenians their uh, link to the sea, which of course becomes historically very, very significant. Well, there's one version of the myth, and it's told extraordinarily in Augustine, the city of God, you know, way down in the 4th, 5th century AD CE, according to which the women who were allowed to vote, this is slightly strange since in historical times they didn't have the vote. At any rate, they went for the woman, Athena, and so their votes, together with those men who voted for Athena, gave Athena the edge. And so that's the foundation myth of uh, Athens. Mm, so much for the legend. What do we know about the earliest human inhabitants of this location? There is evidence as early as about what we would call about 9000 BC before Christ or BCE before the Common Era. And it comes from what's called the Cave of Schist. Schist is a type of rock. But continuity of settlement doesn't begin until round about 3000 BC. But before that, there had been, between the 9000 and the 3000, people from what's called the Late Neolithic, so round about 4000 BC, and they lived in caves on the north side of the Acropolis. If you go to visit the National Archaeological Museum, you'll find what we archaeologists call sherds, that is pot sherds, some people say shards, that is fragments, and in this case of painted pottery. When the continuous settlement began, who were those people and how did the settlement develop? The answer is you can't sort of pin them down in terms of genetics or in terms of their ethnicity. They don't become Greeks until we have Greek script, that is, writing, which has been deciphered as recording the language of Greece and Greeks. And so that's not until about 1500 BC. So I'm talking about, with the late Neolithic, about 3,000, so about 1500 years. We don't, we don't, to be honest, we can't say anything more specific about who they were. Right. So what did um, the advent of, of writing bring to the city? What do we know after that period? Right. Well, the final Bronze Age, about 1500, this is probably when the first of those legendary kings would have lived. And it's about that time that the people that archaeologists call Mycenaeans dominated the entirety of mainland Greece and Crete. And they're called Mycenaeans. It's not a, an ancient name. It's a modern archaeological term because Mycenae in southern Greece, in the Peloponnese, was the biggest city. So the Mycenaeans, uh, according to these legends, of course, a, a mighty military force. What did they make of Athens at this time? What was the, the settlement or the city like at that time? There is enough archaeological evidence to show that Athens was one of the great centres of late Bronze Age, Mycenaean Greek civilization and settlement. Others being Thebes, uh, Sparta, Pylos down in the southwest of the Peloponnese. And the main evidence now for Mycenaeans in Athens on the Acropolis is massive stones. And they're called Cyclopean because the Greeks themselves, the ancient Greeks, were so impressed by the huge size of these stones. If you think Stonehenge, this is the sort of equivalent, that they thought only giants could possibly have manhandled, manipulated them. And there was a race of giants they feature in Homer's Odyssey called the Cyclopes, Kuklopes in Greek means circle eye. So it's thought that they had one eye in the center of their forehead, probably. And if you go to the National Archaeological Museum, that's where you'll find the great concentration of Mycenaean objects. 
As for the Athenians themselves, already they are starting to be buried in regular cemeteries. And what becomes the, as it were, number one cemetery of Athens is the Keramikos, or in Greek, Keramikos, which means the potter's quarter. The cemetery has a continuity from round about 1300 BC, and in fact it's the principal evidence for Athens and its history and culture in the period from 1300 into the period after the Late Bronze Age, the Early Iron Age, the, well, some people call it the Dark Age because things didn't go, go too well. Around about 1200 BC, there were a series of, of massive destructions. We're not sure by whom, but Helos, Thebes, and among other places, suffered severe attacks and uh, conflagrations. And it was actually in these conflagrations, including in Crete, that the tablets, their clay, they weren't meant to be baked hard, but they were baked hard. And these administrative tablets record a language which is Greek, early Greek, and the script is known as Linear B. And this revealed the nature, very, very un-Greek, bureaucratic, in other words, much more like a Middle Eastern kind of bureaucratic civilization based on palaces ruled by kings, so you mentioned that there was a, a kind of dark age, as it were, when the Mycenaean civilization, as we call it now, faded away, was destroyed. What, what happened during that period and how did Athens emerge from that? So we're talking about a period of possibly as long as four centuries, not totally dark. In other words, there are some bright spots, but it consists principally in two things. One, population absolutely declines. You know, about a tenth the number of people are living in Athens and Attica in the 11th century, as were living there in the 13th century. So some economic catastrophe has happened. And then secondly, they are very much not any longer connected, whereas Mycenaean civilization is somewhat homogeneous. It's because they're in regular contact with each other and in regular contact with people's further to the east in Asia Minor and further to the west in Italy, South Italy, and even as far as uh, Crete in the south. But all those uh, communications are severed, and that's why we talk about a dark age. And yet, it's during this period that the Homeric epics, which are oral epics, not written, they're transmitted by word of mouth, they are uh, copied, as it were, by hearing and learn. No writing. There's absolutely no writing known on the mainland of Greece. What explains the uh, resurgence? Well, some people talk about the renaissance of Greece in the ninth, eighth centuries is gradual reopening of contact between different parts of Greece and then between Greece and the Middle East. And one of the key signs of this is precisely the recovery of writing, the ability to write. So that's the emergence that happens principally in the 8th century BCE. So now we have a, a more independent Athens, uh, Athens and its surrounding area of Attica. How did that population and that society evolve over the following centuries? So the first emergence that, looking back, we think is very significant is the development of an institution which the Greeks called the polis. And it's from polis that we get our words derived political, politics, etc. How does one translate polis? Well, one standard translation is city-state, but actually city in the urban sense is putting it a little strongly. And some of us anyway prefer a different translation, which is citizen-state. So never did the Greeks say, Athens did this. They always said the Athenians, and by the Athenians they meant the adult male Athenian citizens, concept which of course develops and the powers of the citizens change from time to time. And initially we think the city of Athens, the polis of Athens, let's say round about 700 BC 
and the next 7th century was run by a narrow clique of what the Greeks called the Aristoi, which means best men. And in the Athenian case, they had a particular, of course, they invented it for themselves, and it means literally descendants or sons of good fathers, the same moral vocabulary in best and good. So eupatridae, the initial Athenian polis was a eupatrid-dominated aristocratic state. And how large was Athens at this time? What sort of population do we get a sense of the, the number of people living there? Yeah, if you think from the 5th century BC, the citizen population eventually at its absolute maximum, this is adult males, 50,000 multiplied by four to get women and children. So you've got a citizen population of about 200,000. We'll go way, way back down, and I would say divide by 10 to get something like 20,000 of the men, women, children, citizens. Then we don't absolutely know when the first slaves came into the Athenian economy. We don't know absolutely when the first resident non-Athenian foreigners, both Greek and non-Greek, came to settle in Athens. But Athens proved a sort of magnet, partly because it had very good ports. So you've got 20,000 perhaps absolute max, I would say, including slaves and non-Athenians in a territory which is about, I'm talking now because I should have said, the city-state of Athens includes Attica, which is the territory around Athens. It's about a 1,000 square miles, about 2,400 square kilometers. So in all that territory, this is when I say the city-state of Athens population, as opposed to the urban population of Athens, which will always be small. It might be as much as half, but it'll always be smaller, of course, than the total territory. So the 6th century, of course, was a time when other ideas were coming to the fore. Athens is famed as the birthplace of democracy or the the ideas that inspired what we now call democracy. How did that come about? What was happening at that time? Well, that's a very complex question. I'll give a very simplified uh, answer. I've mentioned the Eupatrids. Their council was known as the Areopagus because they held their meetings on the Pagos, which means hill of Ares. So Areopagus means hill of the god of war. And very little evidence uh, survives. You can go, it's actually quite fun, but very slippery to go onto the Acropolis and imagine yourself uh, in this place of assembly. And that meeting and meeting place in myth was, of course, founded by the patron goddess of the city of Athens, namely Athena. It's a famous play called The Eumenides, The Kindly Ones, which actually focuses on the founding of this very council. It's very interesting how myth and history and drama very closely linked uh, in Athens. As I say, there's not much to see um, of the Areopagus. The big change comes right at the beginning of the 6th century BC. Athens was in a bad state, both economically and politically. There was internal unrest, there was huge debt, what we call a pre-revolutionary situation. And the Eupatrids, to try to get themselves out of a hole, appointed one of their number as an arbitrator who Though he was a Eupatrid, he could be thought to be decent and reasonable. And the man in question is Solon, S-O-L-O-N. And he became Archon, which means just leader, in 594. And he put forward a quite wide-ranging series of reforms, economic, political, legal, social. And the Athenians agreed to abide by them, the Eupatrids on the one side, the non-Eupatrids, and power was therefore opened up. But one disaffected Eupatrid disliked one particular aspect of the reforms and refused to step down from the office which he should have stepped down from after one year. At any rate, that was a kind of sign that things were not going to go well. 
further problems arose as different aristocrats tried to jockey for position. And from the ensuing, well, it was near civil war, one man emerged as what the Greeks called a tyrant. And now tyrant is a non-Greek word, it's a loan word, and it means someone who rules by might as opposed to by law. So is outside any constitutional framework and is an autocrat. But autocrats can be benevolent, and the Athenian one, Pisistratos, was allegedly benevolent. And one of the odd things he did was make sure that the provisions of Solon's constitution politically worked, so prevented the sorts of things that had caused it not to work. And he ruled more or less benevolently for about 35 years. I mean, really long period in office. And he handed on his power to uh, his son, his uh, eldest son called Hippias, who then reigned for another 10, 15 years. But Hippias committed various mistakes. The Athenians were getting tired of having a sole ruler over whom they had no direct control. And I'm now cutting a long story short. But for both internal and external reasons, Sparta was attacking Athens. There was another kind of revolution. So one at the beginning of the 6th century produced Solon's laws. One at the end of the 6th century produced Cleisthenes' laws. Now, Cleisthenes was also an aristocrat, just like uh, Solon, came from a very distinguished old family, very wealthy. But, however... Uh, it was formulated, the solution to Athens' political problems produced what was not yet called democracy, but emerged organically in a form which later was called democracy. And the key point here is that there is something called a demos. Demos means people. So we're talking about people both including aristocrats, and on the other hand, and this is the crucial meaning now, excluding aristocrats. So the people as opposed to the aristocracy and the masses, if you like, ordinary citizens, carpenters, farmers, traders, not bloated plutocrats with vast uh, estates, they now have the say and the decisive say, and voting is done by majority vote, raising your hands, meetings of the assembly, the ecclesia, and that's all due to reforms attributed to Cleisthenes round about 500 BC, strictly 508 to 7. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So are there any places in the modern city where we can catch glimpses of the urban area where that nascent democracy was developing? Absolutely, because under Solon, the civic centre, that is where Athenians would gather, where the basic political actions would take place, that was in a different place from. Now, you go to Athens today, and thanks to the American excavations since the 1930s, the Greek agora, where you go today to see, underneath the Acropolis, that became the agora following the reforms of 
Cleisthenes. Another place which is worth visiting as a result of the Cleisthenic reforms is the theatre area, southwest slope of the Acropolis. Originally, the seating would have been wooden and therefore uh, movable. It wouldn't have been permanent. But it was from about 500 BC that that theatre becomes a central part of what it was to do democracy. So it's a religious space. You worship Dionysus. You have a couple of festivals every year, theatre festivals. And this is where democracy happens as well as in the Agora, as well as on the Pnyx Hill. And that was where meetings in the open air were held probably once a month to begin with. And then eventually, eventually, as Athens develops its democracy, four times a month, every nine, eight, nine days or so, every nine days. This is, um, to us, almost unimaginable that, as it were, referendums were taking place every nine days. We have really this quite complex society politically evolving here. And of course, there were many other civilizations evolving around the Mediterranean at this time. And they came to affect Athens quite significantly, didn't they, particularly from the 5th century BC? Quite right. And the one main power, it was actually the biggest thing in the Middle East up to that point, was the rise of the Persian Empire in what's today Iran. And they ex- Expanded quite extraordinarily fast, both east and west, so that the Persian Empire stretched in the east and north as far as what's today Afghanistan and Pakistan, and in the west as far as the far western shore of Turkey. So that's where Greeks came into collision because Greeks had been settled along the western shore of what's today Turkey, for hundreds of years. And so the Persian conquest involved conquering Greeks. And some of those Greeks decided they no longer wanted, they they remained in the empire, paying their taxes, paying their military service for quite a while. And then for various reasons, they decided to rise up and the Athenians decided to support the revolt. Well, that was a red line for the Persian Empire. Once they'd crushed the Greek revolt in Asia, they then sent expeditions to mainland Greece, mainly against Athens. Hence, you get, first of all, the Battle of Marathon, 490 BC, which the Athenians and their allies, a little city called Plataea, won. Well, that was another red line. And so it was just a matter of time before they came in even bigger force, this time not just to teach the Athenians a lesson, which was, do not interfere in my sphere, which is Asia, Asia stretching from Western Anatolia all the way to Pakistan, but also to conquer, to make mainland Greece part of the Persian Empire. And so you get two years of conquest uh, attempted and ultimately failed, led by Persian Emperor Xerxes. And this affected Athens most particularly and directly. And we're particularly interested, aren't we, in the city, the urban structure of Athens. Well, the Persians destroyed major public buildings, especially religious buildings, not once, but twice, as well as private houses, which they put to the torch. But they destroyed temples on the top of the Acropolis. They destroyed public buildings, including temples in the Agora. And so victory for the Athenians meant on the one hand, freedom from uh, what they would have considered slavery, but also the need to come to a decision as to how precisely to rectify the destruction. And it's very striking that for about 30 years, almost nothing was done to rebuild, to restore those temples on the top of the Acropolis and those down in the Agora. And it took a feeling, I think, of security that the Persians were not going to come back anytime soon. And the building up of sufficient money in the treasury became sufficiently abundant that round about 450 BC, the Athenians took the decision, right, we're going to rebuild 
the temple of Athena, Polyas, the city Athena. We're going to rebuild the temple of Athena, Parthenos, that is the Parthenon, virgin Athena, and we're going to rebuild a temple of Athena of victory, Athena Niki. They're the big three up on the top of the Acropolis. Together with that went what is one of the most extraordinary, I think, flourishings of civilization in any city at any time, both on the one hand wealth, on the other hand artistic endeavour. So I've mentioned all the temples, I've mentioned the theatre before, we have Aeschylus, he was the composer, the writer of the Eumenides, we have Sophocles, famous for his Oedipus the king, we have Euripides, famous for, among other things, his Bacchae, Socrates in the philosophical field, we have other Greeks coming from elsewhere, attracted by the culture of Athens. I'll just give one example. Protagoras came from northern Greece, from Abdera. So drama, literature, all these things are happening in Athens in the 5th century BC, in the Agora, on the Acropolis. So we have this centre of of culture, of religion, of, of philosophy and drama and architecture, as you say. But of course, Athens was still surrounded by very martial territories to the south in the Peloponnese, but also in the north in Macedon, wasn't it? You're quite right. And sometimes it's thought that the Greeks, their besetting sin was their inability to live together in harmony for any great length of time. I should say that there were about a thousand separate Greek cities scattered all around the Mediterranean, around the Black Sea. So Athens and Sparta are the two big names. They're the most powerful for different reasons, and they're very different culturally. Well, I've mentioned the rise of Athens after defeating the Persians together with the Spartans. So they're on the same side against the Persians. But it doesn't take long for the Spartans to wish to not allow the Athenians to rise any further. And so the couple of big wars, we call them Peloponnesian Wars, the particular big one, the Peloponnesian War, as it were, lasted on and off a generation, so 27 years, 431 to 404 BC. And eventually the Spartans won. And so what you have is a brief period of Spartan ascendancy, hegemony over all Greece and the islands between uh, mainland Greece and uh, Asia Minor. But as all things tend to do, (laughs) Spartans made terrible mistakes. Their allies, the ones that they had had long alliances with, uh, got dissatisfied with them. And where did they turn? Well, of course, to Athens. So you have uh, a series of uh, encounters which the Spartans, to begin with, uh, win. But in the 370s, a new power in mainland Greece, this is Thebes, defeat the Spartans, uh, together with the Athenians, of course, defeat the Spartans. And that really is the end of Sparta as a great power from about 370. Now, you mentioned Macedon. Macedon rises up in the 4th century BC under one particular king, Philip, Philip II, who happens to be also the father, Alexander the Great, And they defeat an alliance, the Macedonians, uh, Philip and Alexander, an alliance of Thebes and Athens. And that is the end of independent Greece. Some people say free Greece. It's a little bit uh, emotional. This is a what's called a a Zeitwendung, a, a turning point of epochs that we move from the classical to what's called the Hellenistic, because Greek civilization now, following the conquests of Alexander the Great, he conquers the Persian Empire in a 10-year campaign, 330s, 320s. Greek civilization now spreads to the limits of the old Persian Empire, namely Pakistan, Afghanistan. Quite extraordinary. At any rate, a quite new mixed kind of culture. We call this Hellenistic. 
But going back, staying with Athens just a little bit, in the 4th century, I mentioned Socrates. He is executed, actually, technically he executes himself for impiety. He's found guilty of impiety and uh, corrupting the youth, a form of treason. His main pupil was Plato. Plato founds an institution, it's an institute of higher learning called the Academy, one of its most, well, its most distinguished pupil is Aristotle, who comes from northern Greece. And that's what I was saying about how Athens becomes capital of culture, attracts Greeks from elsewhere. So the two of them, Plato founds the academy, go to Athens today, and you can see the remains of Plato's academy. Aristotle founds, we call it the Lyceum, go to Athens today near Syntagma, Constitution Square, you'll find what remains of the Lyceum. So the philosophical impact on the urban space of Athens in the 4th century, which sets Athens as the beginning of the entire Western tradition of philosophy, is still visible for tourists today. So we're witnessing another step change in, in the status and the culture of Athens, the thought process. And of course, as you say, the Hellenic world spread around the Mediterranean had a great influence on, on so many different societies, including Rome to the West. What influence did Rome have on Athens and vice versa? That's a very nice way of putting it. Rome in Greek uh, means strength, and uh, patriotic Greeks, wrongly of course, said that, well, you know, Rome really is a Greek city. But there were many Greek cities in Italy, and Greek influence spread as far as what became Republican Rome. But it was that Rome which, rather like the Persian Empire to begin with, then the Macedonian Empire, expands. Beginning in the late 3rd century BC, in the 220s, culminating in the middle of the 2nd century, around about 150 BC, 146 to be precise, the Romans expand east into mainland Greece, and they conquer an area which they call an Achaea. It conquers also Macedonia, and then it carries on. So the Romans have arrived, they've taken this vast swathe of territory which was largely Hellenic. What do they do to the city of Athens? Well, they've, in a word, transformed it. Um, the urban space, the visual impact, the visual effect, utterly transformed, especially under two Roman emperors. The first is Augustus. His name in Greek is Sevastos. Augustus is the Latin, and it's a terrifically powerful title which uh, Augustus ascribed to himself. It means somebody who has the power of the gods through augury, the ability to foresee the future, to get the gods on your side. And he was, in fact, an autocrat and a, a, a tyrant, if you don't like him. There'd been a huge civil war between him and Mark Antony, who married the last Macedonian Greek ruler of Egypt, that is Cleopatra. He, therefore, was not very popular because most Greeks favoured Mark Antony. A number of the structures you'll find in the centre of Athens, for example, one which is attributed to his right-hand man, Marcus Agrippa, it's on the Acropolis. And the other emperor who made his mark was Hadrian. Hadrian was a Philhellene. Though he was in fact from Spain and entirely Italian-Spanish, he wasn't Greek at all, he liked to have himself depicted as if he was a Greek philosopher, and uh, he was very keen on things Greek. He visited Greece more than once. He did an imperial progress, and he left his mark in the form of famous uh, arch of Hadrian, which uh, I'm going to come back to. Now, I mentioned the Greek agora, well, besides that, there is a Roman agora. So if you go to Athens today, be sure to go to both. Don't just go to the Greek one, which is under the Acropolis. The Roman one is a little bit further on. There are baths of the Roman period. There's a library which Hadrian funded. And 
just to round off the Roman impact, but here this is actually a native Greek, a native Athenian, man called Herodes, super wealthy, but also a philosopher. Well, he funded famous structure, which is where today the main concert, open air concerts, are, are still held, and that's called the Odeum, Odeon in Greek, of Herodes Atticus. So the Romans have transformed the city of Athens, and and as we know, Rome had a, a mighty empire, but all empires decline and fall. Rome's empire started collapsing around the turn of the 5th century, the late 4th century, turn of the 5th century. How did that come to affect Athens? Well, as you know, the um, Byzantine world is so called because the city which is today Istanbul, and before that was Constantinople, was originally Byzantium. So post-Roman, the basic divide politically of the Byzantine Empire is that it is the East Roman Empire. So the West Roman Empire is ruled from Rome, the East Roman Empire from the New Rome, Byzantium. But Byzantium in the 4th century under Constantine becomes Orthodox Catholic Christian. And this is the fundamental um, cultural divide in the ancient world between Hellenism, which is pagan, i.e. pre-Christian, polytheistic, and Hellenism, which is monotheistic Christian from the 4th century. So there's a very long period of Byzantium, and, and during that period, Athens was really pretty insignificant. And one sign of its insignificance is the way invaders take it over. It's ruled by a succession of foreigners, and I'm, I'm leaping over here. But going as far as the 13th century, we have Franks, crusaders from, from France. In the 14th century, we have Catalans from northeast Spain. In the 14th to 15th century, we have Florentines, people from Florence ruling. And what's going on with the, the buildings? Well, the Parthenon is up there on the Acropolis, of course, though numerous people were stealing bits from it. But it has to be transformed because it was a pagan temple, so it must now become a Christian temple. And so it's dedicated to the Virgin, obviously Mary, how convenient, as well as those ex um, very, very ancient structures. I'm just going to mention one new Byzantine Catholic Orthodox structure still standing. And this is the Church of the Holy Apostles, the Ayi Apostoli. And it's dated its original foundation about 1000, and it was restored in the 1950s. So you've got some sense of what um, living in Athens in around about 1000, some dim sense what it might have looked like. So we, we have a city here that's been Christian for a thousand years or more under the rule of the, the Byzantine Empire. In the 15th century, that changed again, didn't it? This is now a conquest which applies not just to Athens, but um, into the entirety of old Greece. And it's what we call the Ottoman conquest. So 1453 Constantinople falls to Mehmet II, Muhammad, Muhammad II, the conqueror. Interestingly, someone who spoke Greek, modern Greek, and who revered, he said, the, the old pagan Greek, you know, Homer, and that sort of stuff. So uh, an enlightened conqueror, if you like. In 1456, the conquest was extended to the city of Athens, and Athens remained within the Ottoman Empire, subjugated, they, they speak of the Turkish yoke, uh, until 1832, so getting on for 400 years. And there are visible remains because the Placa area, which is just by the Acropolis, it's an old part of Athens, is the Turkish Athens. So there is um, a, a mosque that you can visit in the northwest corner of the Roman Agora, the remains of the Fetia Mosque. And in Placa itself, there are remains of Turkish baths. So in the 19th century, as you mentioned, 
the Ottoman Empire was was weakening. What happened in Greece and how did Athens regain its independence and what happened afterwards? The Greeks or some Greeks, by no means all, revolted beginning in 1821. And after some pretty nasty fighting, I mean, massacres, for example, on the island of Chios in 1822, after about a dozen years, finally, Ottoman influence, let alone control, was completely at an end. And so we date the new Greek state from 1832. But it's slightly odd, isn't it? I mean, it was independent of the Ottoman Empire, but it was not independent of what are called the great powers, uh, the Western powers, who, in their wisdom, decided that Greece needed a king. And they imposed upon Greece a Bavarian, very young monarch. And so you have, first of all, a German dynasty of kings. Then when that line runs out in about 1860, you have a Danish line. And that's, by the way, the line to which the late Prince Philip belonged, the Danish ruler's Uh, the monarchs of Greece, the monarchy being abolished in the 1970s after some quite unpleasant um, civil wars. And at any rate, during the 19th century, following the uh, War of Independence, first of all, Nathplion in the Peloponnese becomes the capital of Greece. Then Athens becomes, for really symbolic reasons, not because it was the most powerful or the most forward, progressive-looking place, but simply because once upon a time, Athens had been top city, and it had the Acropolis. So it took quite a long time to actually establish it as the new capital and to um, build the infrastructure and so on to make it into a 19th century modern city. Neoclassical buildings were thought to be the order of the day on two particular streets. One is the Queen Sophia Avenue, and the other is the University Avenue. Towards the end of the the 19th century and into the 20th, of course, there were more periods of upheaval, not just in Greece, across Europe and around the Mediterranean. What was happening in Athens at that time and and how was the city affected? Well, this is what we call the Balkan Wars and um, the independence of Crete from the Turkish Empire. And in Athens, there's a sort of contradictory movement. On the one hand, Athens is chosen to be the site of the very first modern Olympic game. And so the Panathenaic Stadium, the stadium where once upon a time the ancient Athenians had run and wrestled and all sorts of things, was restored in 1896. So into the early 20th century, First World War, Greece is principal preoccupation as it still is today, diplomatically, strategically, is with Turkey. But Greece, following the First World War, made a terrible mistake, as it seems in retrospect, thinking that Turkey was now weakened. The Greeks think, right, we'll take the Turks on, we'll send an army in, and we'll liberate the Greeks of Asia, who are still in the control of the uh, Turks from any Turkish control. Ottoman Empire is at an end, but they still control the western seaboard and, of course, the whole of Turkey. They lose terribly, 1922, and there is a fantastic loss of life as the Turks take revenge for this insult to them by massacring various populations, including that of Smyrna. And, well, people differ on the exact numbers. But under the Treaty of Lausanne, neutral Switzerland, in 1923, following the Turkish-Greek War, which the Turks won, it was agreed that about a million Greeks, Greek speakers, uh, Orthodox Christians, had to leave Turkey to go to live within the boundaries of the state of Greece, and mainly in the north of Greece, but also 
especially in Athens. So if you go to Athens today and you see on the bus, Nea Smyrni, means New Smyrna. It's the district of Athens where people from Smyrna settled in the 1920s. So Greeks did extremely badly out of the <laughs> First World War. In the 30s, this is the period of the great dictatorships, of course, in Italy and Germany, well, Greece got its own, I would say, tin pot dictator, a general, Ioannis Metaxas. And to me, the one very positive thing he did was when the Italians were threatening to invade in the Second World War up in the north from Albania into Greece, on the 28th of October 1940, it was Metaxas, who very laconic, like the Spartans, one word response, Ochi. And today, no day, Ochi day, is celebrated in commemoration of Metaxas's refusal to allow the Italians to move any further south. And they actually defeated the Italians up in the north. But, 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 that was just putting off the evil day. Nazis. Germany, first of all, decided that the Italians were not worthwhile allies, simply superseded them, booted them out, took over in Greece, and in 1941-42 came down through the famous Thermopylae Pass, occupied all of Greece, and imposed a really unpleasant regime, uh, extending to starvation, as well as murdering any resistance, of course. Thanks to, obviously, Britain, America, Russia winning the Second World War, Greece was liberated from Nazi occupation, but at great cost. Same way as they had, in a way, shot themselves in the foot after the First World War, likewise after the Second World War. Communists, mainly in the North, but not only in the North, pro russian Russia being still an ally, remember, of the West, America and England, decided that this was the time to go for the sort of communist revolution that took place in Yugoslavia under Tito. And so against them were the traditional, if you like, right-wing, conservative, religious, orthodox Greeks, who were, broadly speaking, royalists. They actually weren't that fond of the monarchy, but the monarchy was something to uh, unite around. And for three years, Greece fought a really nasty civil war. It's thought that half a million people were killed in all between 46 and 49. It took a long time to recover from that. And what's called the colonel's dictatorship, right-wing, anti-left-wing, again, similar sorts of battle lines ideologically, 67 to 74. That's best understood as a hangover from unfinished business in the Civil War of the 40s. That was overthrown, complicated reasons, 1974. And since 74, Greece has become ever more, as it were, normal as a Western Republican democracy. With one unfortunate reservation, and I've mentioned it already, which is that their relationship with Turkey currently is extremely bad. But it's always bad. And it's just now exceptionally bad. Paul, thank you for cramming several thousand years of, <laughs> of history into it and to that concise account. Now, as if that wasn't hard enough, I'd like to ask you to share five sites in Athens that listeners should visit, each of which reveals something about the city's past and perhaps explain briefly why you've chosen them. Thank you very much. I've chosen five personalities. So we're going to begin with Pericles, statesman, democrat, aristocrat, 5th century BC, and he lived from roughly 493 to 429. He's associated with the massive building program I mentioned earlier, which restored and indeed enhanced the Acropolis and the Agora following the Persian destructions. But I'm selecting one building, the Odion, which means a singing 
place, literally. An ode, ode in ancient Greek, is something that's sung. And if you go along a very nicely uh, engineered walkway round the Acropolis, uh, you will come to, not very prominent, but it's under the uh, Acropolis, the Odeon, which Pericles prompted to be built. And it was in that Odeon, suppose you were one of the playwrights that was going to have your tragedies or your comedy performed in the theatre of Dionysus, you gave a little preview in the Odeon. It had lots and lots of columns originally, and it was thought to have been modelled on the tent which the Emperor Xerxes of Persia had brought with him and which the Greeks had captured when he invaded Greece and Athens 480-479. And so when you go to your local Odeon cinema, think of the original uh, Periclean Odeon. Second monument is, I mentioned Hadrian, we're now in the 120s CE, common era, or AD, he set up a great big arch, and on one side of it, you can still see the remains of it, not far uh, south from the uh, Acropolis, on one side of it, it goes, this is the city of Theseus. Well, now, Theseus is, you remember, the last of the mythical kings, the seven mythical kings. And so this is, as it were, ancient Athens. And then on the other side, it says, this is the city of Hadrian, meaning that he had put in a lot of money, transformed it. Another of his projects, very nearby, is the temple of Olympian Zeus, quite extraordinary, begun in the 6th century BC, completed by Hadrian, right? Hadrian's funds, in the 2nd century AD, so 700 years later. My third monument, something that I would recommend you to go, when you go to Athens, to look for, it's a stone sculpture, and it was made uh, eventually by uh, a French uh, sculptor. And it's located on the corner of two royal avenues. So this sculpture depicts Byron, Phil Helene, who actually, in a sense, fought in the War of Independence. At any rate, he turned up and he'd contributed a lot of money. He had armour and he died very sadly of uh, disease at Missolonghi in 1824, before the War of Independence was won. And together with him, intertwined with him, is a female figure representing Hellas. And Hellas is the name of Greece. It always has been. Greece is the term we derive from the Romans, Grykia. The Greeks call themselves Hellenes, and Greece is Hellas. And so this is a sort of, I think, symbolic unification of Philhellenes, like Byron, who were crucial in helping native Greeks to rise up against the Ottomans and achieve their independence. My fourth illustration, my fourth monument, is a tribute to Maria Callas, or as she was christened, Maria Kaloyeropoulos. She was actually born in New York, 1923, but she lived in Greece between 1937 and 1945, which is a very unpleasant time to live in Athens, as she did. And so this uh, fourth monument is the house she lived in in those years, which is currently under restoration, renovation, to be reopened as an opera academy. And this house is on Patision Street, Patision. Fifthly, finally, a tribute to Melina. She's typically known just by her Christian name, Melina Mercuri. And this is a bust which you'll find on the street of Dionysius the Areopagite. It was made in 1999. It was made by a sculpture called Anastasios, which means resurrection, Kratidis, Anastasios Kratidis. Now, she was a brilliant actress, and she's buried in the number one, the 
classiest um, cemetery of Athens. But she's most famous um, politically for becoming Minister of Culture in the 1980s under the new regime, as it was then, of PASOK, which is the Pan-Hellenic Socialist Party of Andreas Papandreou. And she it was who launched the campaign for the reunification, getting back from Britain and elsewhere the marbles that Elgin and others had taken from the Acropolis. So I recommend you to try to seek that out. Wonderful. Thank you for those tips, Paul. And finally, perhaps you could share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to Athens today. So Athens is surrounded by a number of hills as well as the Acropolis. There are actual mountains, but biggest hill, tallest hill, is known as, we English say, Lycabetus, and the Greeks say Lycavitos. And in the, I think it was 19th century, it might have been the 20th, a funicular railway was constructed. So if you want the most spectacular view over the city of Athens, down to the sea at the port of Piraeus, then do make a point of going to Kolonaki, walking up to take the funiculate, and then, having sated your uh, desire for views, walk down slowly, and then you get the sense of the surrounding terrain. Well, I started my academic life as a graduate student at the British School of Athens, which is at the foot of Lycavitos. And so Lycavitos was, as it were, our local hill. And at sunset, we would, from the school, walk up, um, typically not take the funicular, actually, but just find a cafe or find a viewing point to see the sunset. That was Paul Cartledge. His latest book, Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, published by Pan Macmillan, is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.